0: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, and I'm on a mission. Since I was a high school intern in public radio back in NPR's first year on the air, I've devoted my working life to seeking out and disseminating knowledge that I hope will be enlightening and will benefit the lives of our listeners. But the grants we get, the generous support provided from foundations and some others, simply don't cover all our expenses. And if you like what you hear, we're asking for your help so we can keep this going. Please visit humanmedia.org, and at the top of the homepage, click on How You Can Help. Thanks. This Humankind special, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, is produced in association with WGBH Boston and supported by the Humankind Program Fund, whose contributors include the Henry Luce Foundation.
1: The solution did, in fact, work for many, 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 not all, but many people. A, was saving lives. A, was turning people's lives around. It was allowing people to finally discover a
0: way to stop drinking, stop, stop ruining themselves. How Alcoholics Anonymous blossomed from a conversation between two broken men into a worldwide community. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freud. Today, over two million people partake of the storytelling, the good humor, the words of wisdom, and the gallons and gallons of coffee made available at no charge to members who attend Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. AA's basic text, a thick compendium of first-person stories known as the Big Book, has been translated into more than 60 languages and has sold over 35 million copies in English alone. And now science has caught up with AA. Keith Humphreys is professor of psychiatry at Stanford University.
2: So Alcoholics Anonymous research was not super strong methodologically for many decades. But in the last 10 or 20 years or so, there's been a large number of rigorous studies, longitudinal studies that follow people over time, that use really good measures of people's drinking and measures of their AA involvement. And use a technique called randomization, which is the the strongest method we have to really see is something actually having an effect versus it just being, you know, is it just these are people would have gotten better anyway, uh, and now they happen to be in AA. And what those studies have shown has been very positive, uh, that, you know, people who go to AA on average drink less than people who don't go. They're they're more uh, likely to overcome other problems like depression, like social isolation, and so forth. And that has, you know, changed the minds of all people who listen to science from skepticism to a positive attitude about Alcoholics Anonymous.
0: Is there such a thing as a meaningful success rate with addiction?
2: Well, all, all addictions are, you know, chronic disorders. So like, like diabetes or, or like, uh, you, know, um, you know, serious low back pain. So we don't think about them in terms of cures as much as we do management. You know, if you, you know, if you take your insulin, can you manage your diabetes? Well, you typically can, um, uh, eat, but you're still a diabetic. So, you know, the way we look at addiction is not so much is it gone because the person, um, you know, is still going to have it, but does, does AA help people, um, you know, manage their condition, stay sober, and also function in other domains of life? And on that, you know, we, we, we have good evidence that it works about as well or even a little better than uh, the other outpatient treatments are available. Humphreys cautions, though, that AA is not for everyone.
0: Some people just can't handle participating in a group, even on an anonymous basis. Or they need the structure of a professional intervention rather than AA's easygoing atmosphere of equals helping each other. But because AA charges no dues or fees, and its meetings can be found in nearly every town, It does appeal to a broad community of people seeking to gain a victory over alcohol problems.
3: could have only come out of the American 1930s. After the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression taking effect, for the first time, this go get optimistic American culture hit bottom. Ernest
0: Kurtz wrote Not God, a history of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, here
3: were these people who had been uh, titans of business and, and doing very well and suddenly... They were rummaging through garbage pails outside of restaurants, and the restaurants were cooking food even though there was no one there. Some, you know, they're trying to put on this illusion that everything's okay when really it wasn't. And this suffused the culture. The Great Depression, uh, people were depressed, really. The I, I, it was people who had been used to controlling things learned that they were powerless. And I think it was this clash, really, that first discovered AA. that, that level of business. Mm-hmm people who, who had had to confront their powerlessness. So to me, AA could have only come out of the American 1930s. I mean, this is the era out of which neo-Orthodox thought comes in the, in the theology that goes on to the knee the recognition of powerlessness. There are other threads that go on at this time. This, this is the culture of the moment, and AA is born in this, and it takes its early nourishment from it. The
0: medical profession at that time was largely perplexed and unable to solve the heartbreaking puzzle of addiction that had wreaked havoc in so many families. The proliferation of rehabs for alcoholics and drug addicts would not occur for several decades, and the stigma attached to alcoholism required that the recovery movement in its infancy function discreetly, without public fanfare, without use of members' last names. But upon the first publication of the big book in 1939, the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous slowly took off.
4: A.A. grew by one person talking to another.
0: The late Nell Wing, Bill Wilson's longtime personal secretary and the official archivist, recalled the exciting initial spurts of A.A.'s growth.
4: The spread of A.A. is a fascinating story. Uh, In the earliest days, before we had the book, you had they felt you had to talk personally to another person. After the book came out, the first group that started from just reading the book <laughs> was in Little Rock, Arkansas. And we said, Oh, that's great, because one member wrote in for the book, read it, talked to other people. Before you knew it, there was two or three people. It was a group. And that was a very, very encouraging. And and Pep Bill up at everybody up no end, because that meant then you didn't have to by personal contact start AA anywhere you could do it by letter and telling them sending them the book and uh, this started then all over the world Hawaii you know I mean you had a group in in Houston Los Angeles and San Francisco there was always a little rivalry about who was the first group there but then there were loners there were people way out in Wyoming who couldn't get I mean they were isolated there were there were Soldiers, there were GIs around the world in occupation countries, in Germany, uh, in uh, uh, Guam, wherever there was the, the, the army had been, finally in Japan.
0: As peace dawned at the close of World War II, word began to spread about this new fellowship of drunks who were actually managing to stay sober. The need for a program of recovery was acute, and AA would slowly begin to fill that gap.
4: What we call the international today started in the late 1940s by Captain Jack S. He was a skipper of a merchant marine boat. He was an alcoholic. Nobody else to talk to. He wrote to us, wanted literature, and landed in Africa, over in China, over in Japan, the islands, or wherever, and went in to the bars and said, Is there, do, you have, "Do you know another alcoholic? Do you know somebody who needs help?" And he had the book. He would leave the book. I mean, it was like Johnny Appleseed. All these people carrying the message in those early days where Johnny apple seeds. There was a salesman who, who sold window shades to bars, bar rooms, whose territory is up and down the East Coast, who he'd write to us, would say, look, somebody wants help, so-and-so. He'd, say, he'd take the book and visit them personally, and one thing would, of course, lead to another. So finally, you got a network of various kinds of people. There were people in embassies around in Sweden and Mexico, members uh, carrying the message to at least other Americans at that time.
0: Seminal contribution of Alcoholics Anonymous has been to set forth the principles of recovery enumerated in the 12 steps. The steps are brief and deceptively simple, but they are rich in meaning. Thousands of AA groups study them in depth each week. The steps of recovery offer a carefully sequenced process of self-reflection, of spiritual growth, of repairing relationships harmed while in the grip of addiction and of developing a new, healthier life. Historian Bill S. Well, the origin of the 12 Steps is is, there's a lot of places where the
1: 12 Steps came from. Certainly uh, a lot of the practices that led to the 12 Steps originated in the Oxford group. The need for uh, confession, the need for making of amends to people that you have harmed, the need for complete honesty the need for meditation and prayer. All of those things came out of the Oxford group.
0: And the steps also were inspired by the world's great spiritual traditions, which held a deep interest for both of AA's co-founders. Bill Wilson was a big fan of William James' groundbreaking book, The Varieties of Religious Experience, published in 1902. Dr. Bob was a serious student of spiritual philosophy, which he would expound on at length. But neither man was religious in a conventional sense. That may have been a factor when early participants decided to establish AA as its own organization— partially in reaction to what they perceived as the religious rigidity of the Oxford group.
1: As people stayed sober outside of the Oxford group uh, formats, some of, once they started shedding some of the things they found problematic about the Oxford group, uh, and they started opening themselves to other ideas and other things that might help them stay sober, it's a very practical program, and Wilson was interested in what worked. And uh, after uh, a couple of years of this, what he decided what worked was what he finally formulated in December of 1938 into the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous.
3: Step one, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Step two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Step three.
1: Bill Wilson wrote uh, too long versions of the uh, Bill story, his autobiographical story that appears in the big book. As I read both of those stories down in the archive for the first time, I realized uh, that 11 of the 12 steps were almost explicitly, using almost exactly the same language, almost they were explicitly in those stories. So uh, as he was telling the story of his recovery and what, and the message that was brought to him by uh, Abby Thatcher from the Oxford group, what he had to do to stay sober, uh, those things are in fact uh, right there in that May 1938 story that he wrote. He later extrapolated out of that somehow uh, and uh, he claims uh, when he numbered them found them to be 12.
0: We're exploring the history of Alcoholics Anonymous, which has helped tens of millions of people recover from addiction since its founding in 1935. You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. To learn more about the 12 Steps of AA and to obtain an audio download or CD of this documentary, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, please visit humanmedia.org. The core concept of AA's 12 Steps is the alcoholic's utter hopelessness. By admitting complete defeat, alcoholics finally face their absolute inability to control this bedeviling problem through sheer willpower. That may seem counterintuitive, but the principle of personal powerlessness lays the foundation for reliance on a higher power. If I can't fix this, I need to plug into a power source that can in AA, that's the moment of letting go. It's when the refreshing breeze of recovery can waft in. Over the years, we've talked on an anonymous basis with a variety of people who've
5: used the AA program to heal. You know, I wrote a fourth step, a moral inventory of myself, um, you know, and that was really scary, you know, because to someone who ran and hid for so long, to... Um, you know, to sit there and take an honest look at themselves is, is really hard. It's a really humbling process. All of the steps are, you know. Um, admitting complete defeat is, uh, is humbling. Believing that there's a power greater than myself, you know, that's humbling too because that means that I'm not, you know, I'm not all that. I'm not the greatest power on this earth, you know. And uh, That's pretty grandiose to say that, but for a long time I felt that way, you know. Um, I had this huge ego. You know, even though I felt that I was worthless, you know, at times I felt like everything was about me. You know, um, the whole world revolved around me. That's how I saw things. And, uh, you know, I had to let go of that. Um, Turning my will and my life over to a higher power is uh, extremely humbling. You know, that means I'm not necessarily going to get what I want uh, when I want it. I may not get what I want at all. You know, there's a power out there that knows better than I do and uh, that's going to help me.
4: I like the idea of a higher power. I didn't. Uh, I'd had some difficulty with churches and with the uh, formal, formal religions. I'd had difficulty with them. So uh, the higher power appealed to me. I can accept that. That uh, there's always something higher than we are, and
2: higher than I am. There's some people who. Um insist that that is nothing more nor less than a rather conventional God, um, white of skin, hand-bearded, and male. There are a great many other people who uh, simply say that the important thing is not that you believe in a personal God of any kind, but that you know that you yourself are not God, and don't try to fill that role. Higher power with me, I
6: understand the whole concept of it. I have a little more difficult time with it. I don't
0: know if it's because I'm still new in the program or what. Um, I haven't felt a spiritual awakening yet. I know that I haven't done this on my
4: own. When you give up on yourself, you have to be willing to look for something else.
0: The late Betty Ford, former first lady, acknowledged her history of addiction to alcohol and pills. After her recovery, she founded a rehab facility in 1982, the Betty Ford Center in Rancho Mirage, California. It followed AA principles.
4: And in giving up on yourself, you ask for help. And some people even go so far as to get down on their knees and ask for help. I find that this is probably when people are willing to turn their life over to a power greater than themselves.
6: Any alcoholic, if he would get them through his denial enough to realize this uh, of course he has been putting his life in the hands of a higher power all during his drinking because eventually the the alcohol becomes the all-powerful thing in his life and his his whole life is in the hands really of the alcohol and so in in AA why he has to you know come through that and find some other (laughs) higher power other than the bottle that he can turn his life over to.
3: I stood in my own way. I did not surrender to the reality of what my alcoholism was doing to me. I kept fighting to continue to drink the way other people drank. I was a perfectly normal, intelligent person, why couldn't I do that? That's arrogance for you.
6: Trying to let go, you know, this simple phrase, let go and let God, that's tough. That really is tough. No, I give up. I, you 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 do something, God. Yeah. Partly, I think uh, modern man is, conv- is has been persuaded uh, since the, the French theorists uh, in the 18th century to try to be rational and think that he can that he can do things himself. Uh, can control things. And I think that's part of the uh, something that's, uh, build, been built into uh, the culture in, the, in, in more or less civilized society. And we're, uh, we seem to be finding out that uh, it doesn't always work that way, that we can't control things.
5: Early sobriety was one of the hardest things I ever did, you know. The obsession to drink and the drug was so strong within me, you know, and, and, and every cell of my body wanted to drink and drug, but just there was something inside that knew you know that that I needed to stay sober and uh you know I and I was praying I didn't have any faith when I first started praying you know but I started seeing results you know little by little you know I I was 30 days sober you know and then uh next thing I knew I was 60 days sober you know and just to me that that that's an absolute miracle you know um but I but I still had all these feelings and I started I was forced to feel them I didn't have my crutch anymore you know um I could have looked for other things outside myself to make me feel better You know, um, but I just, something inside, I I just knew that 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 wasn't the way to go. You know, um, I knew I had to surrender. And it was really hard, you know. um. For my first month, I probably, I didn't have any feelings. I was still kind of out of it. But uh, probably for the next two months, you know, I was crying every night because it hurt so bad.
2: Your reliance upon a higher power is the bedrock of your sobriety. And um, I have just seen that work again and again and again. I mean, I came into the program on blind faith when I watched how it worked in other people's lives. And um, my faith today is backed by experience and I see how it works.
0: Anonymous functions at the grassroots level where each individual group, usually consisting of a few dozen people, operates autonomously. Typically, they pass a basket to pay rent at the church or wherever they meet and to buy the books and coffee, but that's about the extent of high finance in A.A. By tradition, the meetings stay out of politics, avoid religious arguments, and commercial endorsements avoid anything but helping drunks. There are local and national AA offices where lists of individual meetings are maintained for public access, where the AA literature is made available where phones are answered. But amazingly, no one actually runs Alcoholics Anonymous, and these traditions are widely followed. I've
1: been sober since December 1981. Congratulations. Thank you. I got sober when I was 38, so you can do the math on that.
0: Bill S., the historian we've heard earlier, is a faithful attender of several weekly AA meetings in the Fairfield, Connecticut area where he lives and works. He also volunteers considerable time to serving as a sponsor, an informal recovery partner for other members of the AA Fellowship. One of the ways I tell my story is in
1: terms of the, uh, we, the, the 12 Steps talk about uh, a spiritual awakening. So an awakening is more of a gradual process. And uh, and uh, there's many, many allowances in, in the book for this gradual approach to a spiritual awakening. And I talk about the different spiritual awakenings I think I've had in my life. And the first one always is. Uh, I was early on, uh, maybe three weeks out of... Uh, Rehab, and uh, I was at a meeting, a men's meeting, my Monday night men's meeting, and I uh, was—I know exactly where I was standing. And uh, my sponsor was introducing me to people, and they were all very happy guys, and and I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to become a part of this group. Now, for a guy who had been uh, a self-proclaimed and an actual loner his entire life, I hadn't joined anything. I was—I thought people who, who needed to join thing were kind of weak people. Uh, I was very much brought up in the John Wayne mentality of uh, if you can't do it by yourself, it's not worth doing, or you're a complete failure. And all of a sudden, I found myself standing there thinking, "I want to be a part of this," and that was certainly a critical key and important spiritual awakening for me to have.
0: Making the connection with others. Making the connection with others.
1: I went from an individualistic approach to life to a communal approach to life, and I still live within that community.
0: I know that you have personally served as a sponsor in Alcoholics Anonymous. Can you describe that relationship?
1: My home group, uh, the Stratford Men's Group, is very strong on sponsorship. Uh, We have an event at the end of each month where people who have gotten... uh, have an anniversary that month, get a coin, but you don't get a coin celebrating your anniversary unless you have a sponsor who can give it to you. I have a sponsor. I have two sponsors at the moment. Uh, one I've had for 33 years and the other one for about four years. And uh, I sponsor a bunch of men myself. My wife tells me too many, but it's just the way it goes sometimes. I sponsor, uh, I don't know, 15 guys, I think, these days. And it's a, it's a responsibility that I take very seriously uh, I I turn to my sponsors for help and advice with with real regularity, and, uh, and I try and give that same sort of uh, support and advice and help uh, going in the other direction.
0: And do these consist of sort of one-on-one conversations? Yeah, they're one-on-one conversations.
1: These days, those are phone calls. I get a lot of phone calls uh, during the day. Uh, I say 15—I sponsor 15 guys. I probably get— um, eight phone calls a day. And uh, most of those people I see at meetings. So I not only talk to them on the phone, but I run into them at meetings. I see all of those people. I go to four meetings a week and uh, I see people that I sponsor somewhere in each of those four meetings. It's one of the requirements for people I sponsor, I have to see you in a meeting. And, um, and then of course, with the modern technology, we also do emails, we do texts.
0: And people wonder why it is after decades of abstinence from alcohol, you would feel the need to continue attending AA meetings. Are you fighting off uh, a craving that uh, rears its head sometimes?
1: The, the desire to drink is something that uh, doesn't really go away, but it's certainly, with me, it's lessened over the years, over the decades. When I was first sober, it used to rear its ugly head every 30 minutes, and, uh, and these days it doesn't happen all that often, but every so often, every so often, I get one of those, those blank spots Wilson talked about where I, I'll be sitting at a, at a, a table having dinner with uh, six people and two of them are drinking red wine, and it's a great Bordeaux, and I can smell it, and I think, God, I just love that boy. Maybe I should just try that. I haven't
0: had that particular vintage. So that does happen. But today, you don't yield to that temptation. What interrupts the uh, desire, the tendency to go ahead and drink uh, now that you've been sober in AA for so many years? What is the shield that protects you from uh, having a slip, having a relapse?
1: Well, David, everybody's different on this, I think. My particular shield has always been the people that i've grown close to in alcoholics anonymous that's my particular shield it's very clear to me that that the way my psychology works is other oh, people are keeping me sober
0: You're listening to Humankind. I'm David Freudberg. Studio recording by Antonio Oliart-Rose. Editorial assistance from Mark Kilstein, Kathy Graham, and Bond Collard. Webmaster Brian K. Johnson. Special thanks to Tony Buck. Our program is presented by Human Media in association with Connie Goldman Productions. Program development provided by Short Media. To purchase a CD
6: copy of this program, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. That's 1-800-5-L-I-S-T-E-N. Or visit our website, where you can also obtain an audio download of this and our other programs and can hear selected episodes free. You can access free written materials related to this program as well. Our web address is humanmedia.org. Again, if you'd like to purchase a CD copy of Humankind by phone, please call 1-800-5-LISTEN. And our web address is humanmedia.org.
0: This segment, Steps to Recovery, the History of AA, Part 2, is Humankind Program number 225.
3: The executive producer is David Freudberg. This is Humankind.